Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today and learning from you. So can you start by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Absolutely. Hi, my name is Allison Miller. Um, I am a faculty member at the School of Public Health here at University of Michigan in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education. Um, I'm a developmental psychologist by training, and so I focus on young children and families in my work here at U of M. Wonderful, thank you. And in what areas does your research focus? I focus really on parenting and young child development, and I look at how that relates to health outcomes for kids. So I'm very interested in looking at things like social emotional development, parenting. I focus a lot in my research on stress and self-regulation as it relates to health outcomes. And what I mean by health outcomes for young children are things like eating behavior, sleep, physical activity, those things that we think about in adults. But I kind of look at the origins of some of those behaviors and how parenting and sort of basic child development and wellness relate to those health behaviors for young children, because we know that these early habits um, can make a difference for adult health as well. Thank you. So this past May, a paper you co-authored titled From Zero to Thrive, a Model of Cross-System and Cross-Sector Relational Health to Promote Early Childhood Development Across the Child-Serving Ecosystem was published in the National Library of Medicine. Can you share more about this work and a bit about the study's findings? Absolutely. Um, And sorry for the long title. It's very dense. Um, So I can try to unpack that a little bit. Um, Basically, one of the things we really know about early childhood development, when I'm talking about early childhood development, I'm talking really about children who are zero to five years old. Um, So so that sort of infancy, toddler and preschool age ranges. Um, What's really critically important for that period of development are early relationships um, with trusted caregivers. And so I often talk about primary caregivers and those you know, can often, but not always be the child's parent um, or parents. Um, There's a lot of different examples where we see primary caregivers who are not the child's, you know, for example, biological mother, which a lot of psychology research focuses on the biological mother. Um, Really fascinating for lots of good reasons, but um, we also know that it's, uh, it's very important for children to have caregivers and it doesn't always need to be the biological mother. So just to sort of say that up front. Um, But what we really know is that this early relational health is foundational for healthy child development, um, really based on these relationships, a child can learn to sort of regulate stress when that happens and learn how to control or manage their emotions that can be big and scary if you're a little kid and even if you're an adult. Also based on these early relationships, a child really learns how to explore the world. They go out and learn new things and then they can always come back to that, what we call a secure base when when things get a little tough or scary. Um, And so this early relational health is increasingly recognized as really important for health and development and wellness, frankly, throughout the lifespan, but they get really formed um, in early childhood. That's sort of their origin. 
we also know that these, these uh, relationships are really important for kind of overcoming adversity. I can talk a little bit more about that, but really particularly for children who are facing a lot of adversity, these, these early relationships can be really critical. Um, what the paper was about is that we kind of took that idea of early relational health, knowing that that relationship doesn't exist in a void. Um, because caregivers are often interacting with lots of different systems and sectors and people to kind of meet the needs of their child. And particularly caregivers who are facing adversity are needing to interact with many more of those systems than other caregivers. So for example, working with food systems or food banks or trying to get housing and working with landlords, maybe families are getting evicted. So there's lots of different systems that a family and caregiver needs to interact with all while trying to meet these you know, needs of a young child, which can be demanding in itself. Um, and so we thought of this kind of broad group of systems and sectors that kind of shape child health and family health. Um, and well-being as a child-serving ecosystem, another sort of jargony phrase. Um, but the idea of that paper is really that expanding the kind of relational health concept beyond the child and the caregiver to propose a model of relational health across that child-serving ecosystem, meaning that if we can support individuals in each of those systems and sectors to establish positive relational health with each other, it will kind of help to coordinate those systems and ease the burden on caregivers who are trying to work with all those systems and coordinate care um, for their children and their families and hopefully serve those children and families better. Thank you. Um, and why is it important to develop early relational health between caregivers and children? And how does this assist children later on in their life? Well, we know a lot, sort of starting with the, the negative side, um, which is where a lot of research um, starts in, in health. Uh, there's a lot of work and research, decades of research, really showing that adverse um, childhood experiences, um, what people call ACEs as an acronym, um, are really associated with poor long-term health outcomes in adulthood. Um, as a kind of early childhood person myself, <laughs> a developmentalist, I always sort of chuckle that ACEs really got on the map when we saw that they impacted adult health outcomes like cardiovascular health in adults because people really sort of sat up and took notice and said, oh my goodness, early childhood is a really important time. <laughs> and all of us who study early childhood went, yes, it is. <laughs> so I always kind of find that interesting now sitting in public health. But ACEs are important to understand because they're really associated with poor health outcomes, health and well-being outcomes in adulthood, both health, mental health, earnings, all sorts of things. And really what ACEs can entail are things like material hardships, so like not having enough food or adequate shelter or clothing, um, as well as traumatic um, emotional events such as violence, abuse, and neglect. Um, so these are all more powerful and impactful when they happen in the early childhood period um, because they can really disrupt the developing organism or the child. Um, so brain development can be disrupted, sort of biological systems in the body, how you cope with stress, your immune system, all sorts of things that are really actively and rapidly developing in early childhood can be disrupted. Um, and as well as um, our behavior. So if we learn like 
you know, coping styles that are not super adaptive, like eating to cope with stress all the time, for example, um, those can be established sort of early on and, and last into adulthood. Unfortunately, in this country, many of our kids, especially young kids under age five, um, one in five kids is living in poverty. Um, and that in itself can create is, is all about material hardships and um, certainly also stressors on the family. And so parents who are living in this situation under this, these poverty conditions are really highly stressed trying to meet the needs of their children, um, thinking about all those systems I was just talking about. So ACEs can unfortunately be more common when children and families are living in poverty. And as well, parents who have, may have experienced ACEs themselves as children, may have a harder time because they may not have um, sort of the parenting models available to them to help themselves and their children um, cope with stress and provide that resource when the, when the child needs them. And so <laughs> back to relational health, um, luckily we have seen through some really great interventions um, that early relational health can actually buffer the impacts of things like ACEs. Um, and there are interventions, some right here at U of M um, in psychiatry and in our group um, Zero to Thrive that really focus on working with early relational health and kind of restoring early relational health. Um, and so by establishing these kinds of safe, trusting, stable relationships with caregivers, the child can kind of be begin to build um, some resilience and support or recovery from these early experiences of adversity. And I'll just say one more thing is that really from a global perspective, this idea of, um, they call them nurturing care interventions um, has really taken off like the WHO recommends these kinds of interventions to really um, be a focus of global efforts to support um, maternal and child health and development. So that's kind of exciting. Thank you for sharing that. How can parents and caregivers support the growth of their child's healthy habits? Sure, caregivers can really do a lot. Um, caregivers can certainly, one important thing in childhood, I've mentioned early relational health, but part of that is really providing children with consistent and expectable routines and environments. Um, so that's really one of the most important things parents can do for their children, especially young children. Um, and this is things like establishing family routines, clear expectations for behavior. Um, I always like to talk about bedtime because both of those things come up. <laughs> you, 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 know, you wanna have a bedtime routine that involves some calming activities like a bath and reading. And then also you wanna establish the expectation that again, especially with young children, but it doesn't hurt with adolescents. <laughs> um, yes, this is the expectation for every night. And you know, it may be that sometimes we can't do it exactly the same way each time. I'm gonna build in a little flexibility, but it's also very important to have that expectation that it will happen. And that can be really soothing for a child to just know that that, that is gonna happen every night um, or that's the plan. My son always likes to talk about what's the plan. So it's just the very, very, you know, concrete way to think about routines. I will say that this, you know, it can sound easy to do this kind of thing, but it, we also know it's really hard just thinking about trying to establish routines for ourselves. Um, so I always say it's important for parents also to give themselves 
a break and try to help your child establish these healthy habits, but also realize we can't all be consistent all of the time. Um, and especially when the environment around us is so inconsistent and unpredictable as we have all lived with over the past two plus years. Um, so I think it's important for parents in terms of supporting the growth of child, child healthy habits, um, really to recognize they can try their best. They'll have many chances to get this right because that's another wonderful thing, especially about early childhood is you have lots of opportunities to try again. Um, and it's important as well, as much as you can developmentally to kind of bring children into the discussion um, so that they can have a voice and some you know, autonomy and help with the plan. Um, so I think it also helps to model communicating with the child so that you can have a discussion with the child and the child learns, oh, we make a plan and I have input into it and we discuss it. Um, and they can take maybe more ownership, for example, with bedtime, if they contribute to part of the bedtime plan. And I think that that you know, growth of healthy habits, fostering um, clear, direct communication is always really important. Um, especially because it kind of lays the groundwork for when children need to talk about something that's stressful or worrisome, if they have a, a, an established line of communication to the parent or to some other trusted adult or caregiver, um, that is really helpful because usually as we talk about worries and you know being nervous or anxious about something, it usually helps us manage it better. So getting that foundation in place in early childhood, I think is really critical. Fantastic. As the upcoming school year is quickly approaching, what are some strategies children can use to help them feel prepared or make the transition back to school easier? And kind of, are there any ways that students can start preparing for the school year now? Absolutely. Um, I will say, of course, the big caveat is that we are living in times of uncertainty and around schools starting and closing and being on Zoom and everything like that. So I think, just like I said, for parents to give themselves a break, I think we all need to sort of, you know, remember that we have to be flexible and that it's okay um, to do that. That said, I think there are a number of things that families can do. Um, and I think one uh, I do study sleep, so it's a little bit my bias, but sleep is a really foundational behavior that is beneficial for all areas of health. Like just the research is coming out more and more every day that we know sleep is really important. And so here in Michigan, we are blessed to have light, uh, late summers. And we know that that dark winter is coming. So we always wanna stay up and maximize summer evenings, which is wonderful. Um, but for especially younger kids, I'd probably start easing toward a school appropriate bedtime um, sooner rather than later. And sometimes you can, you know, put up dark shades in the room and that kind of stuff if it's still light out because it's much easier to ultimately arrive at a school bedtime and a well-slept child um, if you're sort of easing towards that gradually rather than sort of starting it like the week before school or even hopefully not the night before school um, starts. So really trying to get that adequate amount of sleep for your child. I think another thing that's important that families can do that's maybe less painful than changing bedtime is just sort of talking with children about how the school year may be different, how routines will be different, what they will look like, and you know, try to infuse some excitement into that and some positivity. 
Um, and thinking about also maybe as a family, this is, this is probably a good time. August is a really good time to like start thinking about some achievable goals and new habits. So things like putting phones in a basket downstairs, if you have a downstairs, um, at least out of the bedroom, ideally for all of us, but certainly for kids. Um, adolescence, it's really hard, I know, but just sort of thinking of some way to get the phones out of the um, bedroom at night um, will benefit everyone. Other things like planning for family dinners or mealtimes or what do we think we want to do during the school year? Should we try for Taco Tuesdays? That kind of thing. Um, I think that that sort of helps visualization of, okay, well, you might have a sports practice or you might have a job or you might have other things to do or mom has to leave early this morning. What's going to, you know, again, making that plan, I think is important and sort of talking about it. A few other things to note is that, again, not to harp too much on screens, but um, we know that a lot of kids uh, don't end up doing as much reading over the summer as they you know, could. And so if possible to sort of, again, like ease back into reading so that it, it doesn't come as a big um, extra burden during school time. So like your local library here in Ann Arbor, where we have a wonderful library, lots of different summer activities. That's a great thing to do um, with your kids. Um, bedtime, you know, establishing reading as part of a bedtime routine is really wonderful. And as long as kids will let um, parents read to them, I would <laughs> hang on to that routine if possible, just because even, you know, after kids can read for themselves, you know, it's nice to be able to bond if possible over stories and sort of share a little bit of things to discuss together. One other thing I'll note is that uh, often school friendships sort of among kids that happen in school sometimes change over the summer. And so it might also be a good time to see if you could reach out to some, some kids you know that your kid might see in school um, if they haven't seen them so that they can kind of get a foothold back in terms of thinking about school um, friendships. And we're talking about younger kids, maybe going on some play dates. Um, certainly kids who are starting a new school of any type, sort of a new high school, new middle school, new kindergarten. Um, if you can go see the school and kind of do a walkthrough of your upcoming routine, I think that can be really, really helpful. Um, and, you know, certainly point out like logistical things to you may not have thought of, but then also just sort of familiarize the child with it and maybe, you know, meet a friend at the school or something like that. But if that were possible, that can be a nice way to just make it, make it real, but make it kind of fun and exciting too. Those are wonderful strategies. Thank you so much for sharing those. Going back to school can also be a difficult time for parents and guardians, um, as well as teachers and school administrators. So how can they support their children while also taking care of their own mental health and well-being? It's a really great question. Um, it kind of harkens back to that idea of thinking about relational health across the the child serving ecosystem, um, because clearly schools are a really big part of that ecosystem. Um, I think thinking about connections between schools and families and how to firm those up and make them both functional and um, trusting and positive is a really good goal. Um, and I know that's a challenge because teachers and administrators are, again, facing uncertainties of school closures and everything like that, changing school policies, short on staff, short on mental health counselors, like school nurses, you name it. 
um, schools are really facing a lot of challenges and we expect them to do a lot for us. Um, so I think that a, a, a kind of a goal is that idea of clear communication between families and schools around what's happening. As we've all seen during COVID, it can be much more stressful when things are unpredictable. So it's really essential to keep families and schools um, in clear and regular contact um, about school planning, um, school policies, changes in policies, planning for teacher shortages, because we know these things will happen. And I think it's much more uh, helpful and adaptive to forecast them and talk about what the plan is for them, even if that plan is, you know, we don't really have a plan yet, but we will let you know when we do have a plan. Um, and I think that that can really help build relational health between schools and families, um, as well as within a school between administrators and teachers. Um, and other school staff members. So that's all really important. I think a few other things I would say would, is that um, just like with parents for teachers, school administrators and other school staff, um, remembering that like you can't be as helpful to the kids if you're stressed yourself. And um, again, even though this is really hard, it's, it's important to remember that idea of sort of putting on your own oxygen mask before helping others. Um, I think that's really important. So finding, again, August is kind of a good centering time to do that. I know a lot of teachers are already gearing up for the school year um, as we start in August, but that idea of finding some activities that you could carry forward with you into the school year that are sort of calming activities for you. It feels a little bit selfish sometimes as a parent to think about that, but it's really important um, to have some way of sort of restoring your own energy and balance and mental health and wellness. Um, so things like exercising, going out in nature, you know, taking the time to enjoy a cup of coffee is always sort of a small moment to hopefully be helpful in that regard. Um, in terms of other kind of big picture things, I would say that it's really critically important for teachers, school administrators, parents, everyone to really realize that kids are operating with about a two year lag, um, you know, in some cases in terms of academics, but really critically in terms of social and emotional and behavioral development, um, because they're still really suffering the after effects of um, isolation and limited socialization during COVID. So even if schools were open, we know a lot about you know, masks impairing social interaction and kids were in and out and things were unpredictable, teachers were changing, it was not stable. And so I think that is really critically for all of us to remember, especially as adults, we went through a lot of stress and are still going through a lot of stress, but kids really missed out on those critical socialization pieces during critical points of their development. So I talked to a lot of kids and families, and I have kids myself, and people always want to discuss like, well, when was the worst time or the best time to go through COVID? And I think there's just pros and cons or mostly cons at, at lots of different developmental periods. And we see it play out and we're beginning to see, I think the tip of the iceberg of how it's playing out um, for kids who went through this at different time points um, in their development. And so the idea of kids who are coming back to school with limited socialization skills and opportunities, um, having had limited opportunities, they're gonna be behind in things like conflict resolution and even basic social interaction, You know, asking for what you need, making friends, 
you know, asking a teacher about an assignment, all of those things require social skills and social interaction skills and just kind of planning and awareness in a way that is, I think, delayed for most kids. I mean, obviously that's a huge generalization, but it's just seems pretty clear. And so I think we all need to remember that and really have patience and not expect even the even given, you know, the, the pressures of like, oh my gosh, they're academically behind, we have to catch them up. They're not ready to kind of be caught up at some sense in that way. I think connected to that, many kids have experienced significant loss, grief, and trauma due to the COVID pandemic. And so people have, kids have certainly lost parents and loved ones. And so managing all of that stress and adversity and trauma coupled with sort of the lack of kind of social development and support and social emotional skill building that usually happens in childhood. I think it's just a really challenging situation. Um, and so I think, again, we all need to remember that. It's hard to, to remember that and it's hard to manage it because sometimes these behaviors can come out that can be challenging or hard to deal with or seem like kids are purposely acting out or withdrawing. Um, but I just think we have to remember that they're just sort of delayed for their age. I've also heard just people talk about, um, you know, worrying about bullying in a whole new way, um, as well as worrying about kids who were actually okay to stay home and preferred staying home during the pandemic. And now the expectation may be to go back for many of those kids. And so I think there's just lots of different triggering things that may be happening in school that can be that will be a challenge going forward. Thank you. As the podcast comes to a close, what is one thing you hope listeners remember from our conversation today? I guess I would say one phrase to hang on to would be the, the relational health idea. Uh, we all need relational health. We all need to find trusted others as much as possible that we can share with, and that's really important. Um, I think also remembering we're all kind of doing our best, um, but, you know, have patience with one another. <laughs> the other uh, thing to note is that there are many resources out there. Um, access to these resources can certainly be an issue. Um, and one of the potential brighter spots of the pandemic is that we made great strides in developing things that were already sort of happening, but things like telemedicine. Um, visits have gotten more feasible, reimbursable. Um, and so those could be an option for families who really just can't make it in to see someone that might be more available. Um, and there are also many um, sort of digital and text-based, what I call kind of light touch mental health um, support interventions, um, as well as of course, crisis hotlines. But um, there are a few different kind of creative options um, in an overall situation where we have limited access. But I think if people are you know, needing support, absolutely don't hesitate because there's a lot out there that you could access. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute honor to talk with you today and learn from you. Thank you for sharing those strategies and resources as well and taking the time out to join us. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.